All right, we are recording. Welcome back to our podcast. We are so excited to have you guys with us today. We want, Before we dive into our topic, we want to give a shout out to Jordan in Hawaii. She reached out to us. She's studying for her certification in ELBW, which is extremely low birth weight babies. And um, she was referring back to our episode on IVH, where we were talking about delayed cord clamping and the benefits of that and could it cause IVH, could it not cause IVH. She brought out for some more information um, in regards to that where she informed us about the um, normal transition for babies and how delayed cord clamping helps with that and that it just naturally helps us not have to play catch up with our our blood volumes with our bodies from there. So we appreciate the feedback, Jordan. Um, I'm sure at some point we will dive deeper into delayed cord camping and IVH, but we love hearing from our listeners. So reach out to us if you have something you want to share. Yes. Thanks again, Jordan. That was really exciting. So moving into today's topic, just as a disclaimer, we want you all to know that are listening. We are in no way promoting vaccines one way or the other. We absolutely believe that That is a personal choice. That is something that each individual person needs to weigh the risks versus benefits for themselves. But we are going to touch on some topics that are preventable if you are vaccinated and the side effects of if you choose not to be vaccinated. All right. So we're going to start now. We're going to jump right into hepatitis B. What is it? How can you prevent it? What do we do if we got it? Yeah, so Michelle, I don't think I have actually ever had a baby, newborn, or premature whose maternal serology was actually, like the surface antigen was actually positive for hepatitis B. I have typically seen treatment for infants when we do not have the hepatitis B surface antigen maternal status available. And so what, what do we do and what do we see? What are the symptoms of congenital hepatitis? Um, I pulled up some information from nicloschildrens.org and, um, congenital hepatitis B does not typically present in the newborn period. Um, so an infected child would present between the ages of one and five and they would have symptoms of acute hepatitis. So abdominal pain, loss of appetite, yellowing of the skin. And what what are the options? What do we look for when we are attempting to prevent congenital hepatitis? One of the things that we see mothers in the U.S. are screened for hepatitis B through a surface antigen. If that surface antigen is positive, then we will treat the newborn within 12 hours of birth with the hepatitis B immune globulin and also the hepatitis B vaccine. And from there, the, you know, the infant is then closely followed by their primary care physician and they're given the series of vaccinations based off of their birth weight. And I'm not going to dive really deep into what happens in primary care. I think that is really, we're looking at NICU newborn care. And so, you know, 
what I have typically seen with babies and babies that are under 2000 grams and we do not have a maternal serology available will require the hepatitis B immune globulin within 12 hours of birth. We also call it HBIG. So we'll refer to it for the rest of the episode as HBIG. Our neonates that are over 2000 grams at birth will require HBIG and the hepatitis B vaccine within 24 hours of birth. And again, I've not seen a positive hepatitis B serology for mom in my entire practice. You know, typically hepatitis B vaccines are given as part of childhood immunizations. So it's Mm -hmm. really just not common in the U.S. at this point. Right. I think as it's true, it's not common because we have historically have been good about getting vaccines, but as more and more people are leaning towards being more natural and staying away from some of the vaccines, you are starting to see an uptick in some of these preventable infections that you can get. I'm like Darla in my practice. I've not seen a mom that's come through that was H positive, um, HB positive. I don't even know what I'm talking about now. (laughs) (laughs) Hepatitis B positive. Hep positive. Um, I've not seen them come through. I've seen treatment for babies. I've seen they question because mom wasn't screened prior to birth and we've treated the baby, but I've just not seen, seen that. But then like Darla said, we're focusing on our newborn NICU population and you don't see it that soon. Usually they're closer to a year old before they start preventing. But if we know that this is in mom's history or we don't know that it's a mom's history, it is something that's definitely preventable given the vaccines and the HBIG that we were able to give right. these little ones. Like we said, going into this, we are not promoting it one way or the other. Yeah, we're not promoting, not discouraging. Of course, everybody has to weigh those risk benefits for themselves. And, you know, obviously we try to be careful about language and stuff like that, that we use just to try to be sensitive. And even, um, you know, even, to the point of I had a mom one time refusing Rogam because she was against vaccines. And of course that was carefully explained and we will take a deeper dive into Rogam when we discuss ABORH incompatibility. But that being said, Rogam is not a vaccine. And so, you know, just, we try to use sensitive language. These are personal choices. Um, and really, I think that we, we live really in, in kind of this ideal scenario where, you know, we, we have widespread use of vaccines. And we did recently have a baby whose mom had um, a prior pregnancy that was within a year of this baby being born. And she didn't get prenatal care for this baby. And uh, baby was 28 weeks. We did not have serologies for this pregnancy. However, what we had were her serologies from the most recent pregnancy from the year prior. And so really that afforded us some more time to wait for mom's surface, hepatitis surface antigen to come back in assuming, okay, well, if she wasn't hepatitis B positive, you know, 13 months ago, is it possible that she's not hepatitis B surface antigen positive now? 
And the neonatologist made a clinical judgment call to say, I don't think this baby needs uh, Hbig. I think we can wait until that surface antigen that was drawn on admission. I think we can wait for that to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so also, Michelle, I think it's really interesting. I've had a lot of questions um, recently I've seen on a lot of maternal charts uh, surface antigens for hepatitis C. And I think that's been really interesting and has brought up a lot of questions about the other hepatitis viruses. They're not necessarily related. So there are different routes of transmission and your fecal oral route transmission is your... Let me rephrase that. So there's different routes of transmissions, and they're they're called hepatitis viral infections because they affect the liver, not necessarily because they are the same family of viruses. So your hepatitis viral infections that are transmitted through fecal, oral, parenteral routes... (laughs) are hepatitis A, hepatitis D, and hepatitis E are all fecal-oral, the ones that can be transmitted sexually or parenteral is hepatitis B, hepatitis A, hepatitis D, C, and E seems to be exclusively fecal-oral. So they... They, their incubation phases are different. I'm kind of pulling information from a pathophysiology textbook that is published by Elsevier, and it is McCants and Huther, 8th edition. So kind of looking at the different hepatitis B viral infections, they are all just a little bit different. A couple of them you can see sort of in conjunction with each other. Hepatitis B is one that really kind of flags for us because we know that we can prevent it congenital hepatitis B through giving the hepatitis B vaccine and Hbig. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of prevent some long-term complications from um, this. We know that it's A, preventable, and B, it's easily transmitted during birth. You know, sometimes you hear a mom's going to have a C-section to help preventing some to prevent transmitting something to their baby during the birth process. Well, with Hep B, you can transmit it with both vaginal and C-section deliveries. So going into this, you want to, you want to prevent if you can in most circumstances. Um, The other thing that we run into moms when we're talking to them about getting the HBIG or any of the um, vaccinations for Hep B is they ask, you know, I'm getting it so close can I breastfeed my baby? You absolutely can breastfeed your baby. It is not, Hep B is not transmitted through your breast milk. So it's not one of those things that you have to worry about unless you have severely cracked nipples. I think in the, in the United States, the only, the only viral infection that I have seen that the CDC says absolutely no breastfeeding for is HIV. And that's if you have a high viral load. And because yeah. if you are taking your medications and your viral load load for HIV is low, your rate of transmission is low also. But 
if you're not being treated or you don't know that you're HIV positive and your viral load's high, it's very easily transmitted. But absolutely, that is one of the, probably the only one. Yeah, that's the only one that I can think of. And recently, um, I was reading through some literature in developing countries because mom is on some sort of, when mom is on some sort of antiretrovirus viral medication and the baby is also on like an antiretroviral breastfeeding is promoted Mm -hmm. because of the risk of contaminants in the water in the developing countries, the, um, risk of transmission when mom is being treated and baby is being transmitted appears to be low. The risk of contaminated water affecting the neonate is really high. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was kind of some interesting information about HIV as we kind of, you know, drift out of talking about hepatitis B. But yeah, so we don't typically see hepatitis B signs and symptoms in the newborn period, usually between ages of one and five. So moving into our topic of rubella, what what have you seen as far as um, neonatal rubella infections. So just with the rubella infections with moms, especially if they contract it before 20 weeks during their pregnancy, um, I've known firsthand a couple of moms who've lost babies have had a miscarriage because they contracted rubella during the first 20 weeks of their pregnancy. Um, this is another that vaccines can handle. And then, um, you know, when you think about it, pros and cons, Again, with what's best for you. But with um, congenital rubella, kind of the things that we see are impaired hearing, heart problems, eye diseases. Eye disease is up there, but deafness is the highest one. I was going to say the eyes and ears are the same is what was getting ready to come out (laughs) (laughs) We are not deaf in our eyes. Um, Well, maybe we are deaf in our eyes. Because our ears can hear. Technically yeah. we are, but um, developmental delays, low birth weights, um, splenata, splenohematomegaly. See us one day for a TikTok on how to pronounce words. So we're kind of talking about signs and symptoms. And as promised, I really want to talk about way to go Wikipedia. It's so used to having everything in front of them right away that we forget that innovation just takes time. I, I, myself, I get frustrated too. Why? And you know, this is being one of my best friends is, Hey, I talk to you all the time. Hey man, I'm frustrated in the fact that I can't seem to just get there in Mm -hmm. the next day, but that's just not how these things work, right? Innovation needs to be planned out. It needs to be very methodical. And then when it finally hits, that's when it seems like to everyone else that it, it sort of just came out of nowhere. But to you, you know the amount of dedication that it took over that time. Yes, Wikipedia did provide us with some really awesome information. Like really awesome and legitimate references. So yes, way to go, Wikipedia. The picture that I posted on Instagram was the peppered retinopathy is from Wikipedia. And the peppered retinopathy is the result of a congenital rubella infection. 
So just really interesting. So during the last major rubella epidemic in the United States, and this is directly from the CDC, um, just and this is a quote from the CDC, during the last major rubella epidemic in the United States from 1964 to 1965, an estimated 12.5 million people got rubella. 11,000 pregnant women lost their babies, 2,100 newborns died, and 20,000 babies were born with congenital rubella syndrome. Once the vaccine became widely used, the number of people infected with rubella in the United States dropped dramatically. Today, less than 10 people in the United States are reported as having rubella each year. Since 2012, all rubella cases had evidence that they were infected when they were living or traveling outside of the United States. But do you know what country they didn't go to to get it? Where? Australia. Really? It is very uncommon in Australia. To get rubella? To get rubella because they bought into the vaccine programs. Interesting. Interesting little piece of data that just popped up on my screen. Very interesting. I thought it was going to be like rabies. You just don't get it in certain climates. (laughs) Nope. No. (laughs) That wasn't it. That wasn't it. I just found that. I just saw that and found it interesting. I also, I guess I've never really thought about transmitting rubella either, that it was droplet. Yeah, I really... I was thinking skin contact or something. Well, until I really started taking a dive into some of these congenitally transmitted infections through school, I never really thought about how rubella was transmitted. Mm -hmm. Never. No, I didn't consider that it was droplet. Um, You know, some of the other things when you think about rubella too, as a pregnant woman, it's a 14 to 21 day incubation period. So if you think you've been exposed or you know someone who have feels as if they may be exposed, you probably want to stay away from them for about a month. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's all like 14 to 21 days is quite a while. And I give the extra week in there just to give a buffer. Just give a buffer. Yep. Nothing wrong with a little buffer. Okay. So the earlier in pregnancy that rubella is contracted, the more harm to the fetus. So the classic rubella, classic rubella syndrome is... Uh, deafness, about 58% of patients, eye abnormalities, especially retinopathy, cataract glaucoma, and ophthalmia in about 43% of patients, congenital heart disease, and especially pulmonary artery stenosis and patent ductus arteriosus in about 50% of patients. And again, I'm taking this right off of Wikipedia they were really on point. I cannot say enough about looking up congenital rubella, uh, spleen, liver, or bone marrow problems, intellectual disability, microcephaly, low birth weight, thrombocytopenic papura, which is those pinpoint red marks on the skin or red areas to the skin that um, you typically see I mean, when we talked about sepsis and we talked about um, thrombocytopenia, so think thrombocytopenia, blueberry muffin rash, hepatomeglia, microganthia, and skin lesions. So that's what you see, Sarah. I was looking as you're reading those statistics. I was reading, like, what happens if you get rubella while you're pregnant? So here, um, based off the pregnancy birth baby website, it says the women who catch rubella in the first 11 weeks of her pregnancy, the baby's very highly 
most likely going to be born with a congenital syndrome. One in three babies of these women with rubella between who catches rubella between weeks 13 and 16 will be born with rubella. And then if a pregnant mother is infected after 16 weeks, it is unlikely that they'll be have any rubella issues. See, so I it's think that's definitely, definitely an early pregnancy. And you think about when you find out that you're pregnant. I mean, I know for me, I was almost 16 weeks with two of my three pregnancies before I knew I was pregnant. So at this, based on these numbers here, like I could have had rubella and not known I was pregnant and really done some damage to my fetus. Yeah. There really could have been some anomalies there. I think it's interesting. I have never seen rubella in practice. I've not seen it on a pregnant mother, but I did take care of a pediatric patient okay. very early in my career. And it's, I mean, it's a red rash that's on their body. Um, really in the red rash, really they were looking the pediatrician originally thought it was a strep infection that had just gotten out of control. Like scarlet fever, Mm -hmm, like scarlet fever. And then did some testing and turned out it was rubella. That's the one and only time that I've ever seen it. I wonder if there would be a delay in diagnosis because we just don't see it in practice anymore. I wonder if there would be a delay in diagnosis if the pediatrician was newer, younger versus older. I think that would be really interesting. Because your early symptoms are very generic. Fever, sore throat, runny nose, Mm -hmm. don't feel well. Well, that's nearly every every infection, virus, bacteria that you've known to man. Right, right. So interesting. Very interesting. Um, Give us a shout out if you have seen congenital rubella syndrome in your population. I think it would be like, I am really interested to hear from Mm -hmm. people who have seen this. And then just as a quick side note, um, there's a really good podcast that covers rubella. It's called this podcast will kill you. And they cover rubella in their episode called timing is everything. And it really speaks to what Michelle was saying that if congenital, if rubella is contracted before the 16th week of pregnancy, you will really see a lot of these congenital rubella syndrome symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So very interesting. Moving on from there, have you ever seen varicella affect? Actually, yes. Okay. And this little one was born with, um, their arms and legs were a little funny looking. Okay. They had some scarring on their skin that was kind of unexplained. It took a lot, of, a little bit of connecting the dots and yeah. interviewing mom with, did you have, what did you have during your pregnancy? And she was like, oh, after much interrogation, yeah. I did have chicken pox. It's really funny. I do feel like sometimes we interrogate parents a little bit. We're like, what were you doing? <laughs> what was going on? Are you sure you didn't notice? Are you sure? Are you sure? Like what else happened? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was, Mm -hmm. it was that. And it was, you know, we're trying to like, why does this kid look this way? Yeah. And, and the parents are like, I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. Mm -hmm. So you're really asking a lot of me. (laughs) Well, when you think about the pregnant brain, you're tired. Yes. All your blood is being shot into the placenta. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Well, you're asking me these questions and I have. My brain is being sucked dry from a placenta. So there's that. (laughs) Yeah, that's the only time that I've seen it. I know that, um, you know, I can think of a couple of times in the unit where I worked 
our precious little secretary, God bless her soul. I don't know how many times the poor woman had shingles. Oh goodness. And you know, shingles is part of the the varicella family. And she was always, she was out of work. And she, for the longest time, she's like, I don't understand, but it's so easy to pass it along. Yeah. Just to healthy people. Yes. Um, let alone the population that we work with. Oh yeah. These little babies. Um, so the clinical manifestations of the varicella zoster virus infection. So one, it's thought to be transmitted transplacentally. And this information I took from Avery's diseases of the newborn. And some of the clinical manifestations that you may see are asymmetric atrophy with limb hypoplasia, low birth weight, neurological abnormalities, cortical or spinal cord atrophy, seizures, microcephaly, and encephalitis or Horner syndrome, and ophthalmic abnormalities. I really feel like there is kind of a trend with congenital anomalies that happen early in pregnancy with the eye anomalies. Mm -hmm. And you also see congenital cataracts. And again, we'll cover this in a later episode. Congenital cataracts, I feel like we see a lot with your congenital viral infections and with metabolic disorders in the neonate. And I find that really interesting um, how those things are all correlated. Anyway, so um, microophthalmia, atrophy, and cataracts, and uh, GI abnormalities were reported in about 15 to 23% of cases. Findings included duodenal stenosis, dilated jejunum, small descending colon, intestinal atresia or bands, and hepatic calcifications. So really, if a mom is pregnant and she thinks that she has been exposed to chicken pox, it's really important for her to go to her care provider and let them know. In late 2012, there was a treatment approved through the FDA for varicella in pregnant women, and it's called Verizig. And it's a post-exposure prophylaxis for varicella for individuals at high risk for severe disease. So I'm quoting Avery's diseases of the newborn here. If a susceptible pregnant woman has a significant exposure to varicella, administration of varizig to her and her unborn child should be considered. And that would really be important, of course, to prevent some of the manifestations in the fetus. And as you're saying that, and you're going to talk to your healthcare provider, one of the things that the March of Dime website says, don't get the vaccine during pregnancy. Right. Because so it make is, sure you're getting the right treatment. Correct. So it's a live attenuated vaccine. When I, fun story for you all, when I first became a NICU nurse, I did not have access to my vaccination records and I ended up having titers drawn and my varicella titer was extremely low. Now I was exposed to chicken pox as a child. My brothers all had it. Um, you know, I grew up in the day where we did like chicken pox parties. And so one kid had the chicken pox and they were all exposed. 
Um, so when I started in the NICU and had these titers drawn and my titers were very low, my grandmother was going through chemotherapy treatment and I was not allowed near her for several days after the vaccine. And so I really, anybody that we can reach the, the, um, the chicken pox vaccine is not recommended during pregnancy. It, it is a live attenuated virus. And so it's really important um, to kind of advocate for yourselves and say, I know that I can't get this vaccine. I've definitely been exposed. I know there's this medication and really explore those options with your care provider. Again, those are risk benefit decisions that you have to make for yourself. I do think it's important to know, to know that that is out there. Um, the other question that I get a lot are for, for moms who have chicken pox, can I breastfeed? The answer is yes. So again, from Avery's serious postnatal infection acquired from maternal varicella via breastfeeding has not been reported. Breastfeed your babies. If you're mm -hmm. breastfeeding, breastfeed them. Mm -hmm. With some side notes, you're talking about getting chicken pox during your pregnancy. Showing here that if you get chicken pox two weeks before you birth, before you birthed, before, before you birth, before you birth, before you give birth or two weeks after you give birth, you can pass this on to your baby. It's usually mild, but if you give chicken pox five days before birth or two days after birth, your baby could get um, neonatal varicella, which is a very life threatening condition to so make sure that you're watching your timelines. You're kind of seeing chicken pox is one of those where you think about as a little kid, I had these itchy spots and now I've got scabs and stuff. Mm -hmm. When you deep dive into just pregnancy and the pregnant body and babies, one more to be concerned with. Yep. Even our healthy babies are extremely susceptible. So yeah, I read that too in um, Avery's Diseases of the Newborn. And this is another thing where timing is really important. Um, so Avery's says, you know, neonatal varicella in a newborn whose mother develops from develops varicella from five days before until two days after has a high risk of morbidity and mortality. And, um, I just, I think that's so interesting how the timing of this, you like, if you get it two weeks out, yeah, it's so low. It's so crazy. And then you're five days out and yeah, you might not take a baby home with you. That's it's really it's, crazy. Really crazy. I know, um, we had a mom who delivered within the last year or so, who's the older child before she delivered had chicken pox. And so the child was quarantined with grandparents and they stayed away, stayed away. And the day after discharge from the hospital with their healthy term newborn, the parents came back in with her and I got a call from the emergency room. Um, actually, I got a call from the pregnant neonatal nurse practitioner who said, Hey, can you go pop your head in that room and tell me what that rash is? Oh gosh. <laughs> I said, absolutely. I said, and, um, you know, of course we never take pictures of our patients and share them with the neonatal nurse practitioner practitioners ever. But, um, I definitely, I definitely disclosed to the parents that the NNP was pregnant and, she was really the one who had to make the determination over this rash. It was normal newborn rash. The parents were very nervous. And for all of these reasons, 
And, you know, so of course, what did I do? I said, here, can I use your phone to take a picture and take out into the hallway to show the practitioner? And we determined it was normal newborn rash, but they were rightfully nervous. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, and again, this is something that I really have not seen in practice. You know, I feel like I feel fortunate enough that some of these congenital viral infections have not affected my babies, mm-hmm. but they are definitely, definitely congenital infections to be aware of. You yeah. know, if we're not really sure, it's okay to go to the provider and say, could this be rubella? Could this be varicella? I mean, but you think us during our childbearing years, you know, most of the population was widely vaccinated. Yes. Whereas now when you're looking at people who are in childbearing years now, there's a trend moving away from vaccination. So you need to be cognizant of what's out there. What have you been exposed to during your pregnancy? What are the side effects? Right. How is this going to affect me? How is it going to affect my baby? And as we see the trend continue to uptick towards not getting vaccinations mm-hmm. or getting yeah. vaccines on a different schedule. Right. We just need to be very aware as providers, as potential parents, yes. mothers, fathers. And of course having, you know, I, I do, you know, it, of course I'm trying to be careful, but I do feel strongly about vaccines for myself and for my children, but taking a non-judgmental approach towards other people's decisions that they make for their families. I think that is really important. Um, You know, and then, of course, having these things in the back of our minds, you know, some some of you live in areas of the country where you see a lot of immigration and some of these other countries just do not have access to the care that we do. And, you know, I think that we just live in a very fortunate place where we're having children. We are if if we choose if, if vaccines are not right for us, we choose not to have these vaccines. We're surrounded by people who typically do. And so our transmission rates are really low. Because her, yeah, because we're essentially protecting each other. But some of our patients are coming from areas where they just don't, it, it's not a choice and they don't have that access. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you really need to kind of keep some of these things in mind. Um, Michelle, what else can you add? really, as we said in the beginning, vaccines are a personal choice. I am on the same page with Darla. I feel very strongly about vaccinations. Um, And as we move forward, just thinking about, we now have herd immunity, so we're protecting each other. But as more and more people and more and more children are growing up without these vaccines, we need to keep as providers in the back of our mind, are we seeing some of these things? Maybe 10 years ago in my practice, I might not have a baby had a rash. It's just a newborn rash. But should I be thinking, oh, could this be a rubella rash? Could it be a chicken pox rash? Stuff that I just you haven't encountered based on how practice prior practices were. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, give us a shout out if you guys have any questions, any information that you feel like we missed. We would love to hear from you. I have uh, the link to our website attached in the comments. You can contact us via Instagram. Our email address is on Instagram, and our email is attached to the episode description. So thanks again for listening.